Standby like use 2 through 33, sound 1A through 7 on deck. Standby Q actors. Electrics, kill the blue run lights, please. Like you 2 and sound 1A. Go. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Hang and Focus Live with Sean Daniels. Luckily, I am your host, Sean Daniels. Thank you all so much for being with us this afternoon. We have uh, some fantastic guests. We have Joe Tapper, who is the star of The White Ship and has also been on some plays on Broadway, but we won't really talk about that. We have Hank Stratton, who is the artistic director of Arizona Repertory Theater, which is the theater out of the University of Arizona. And we also have Ryan Hampton, who is a advocate, a book writer, and all-around fantastic guy. Uh, we'll be talking really about artists in recovery today and getting ready for the white ship reading on Monday. So if you don't know, and you will now shortly, we are doing a reading of my play, The White Ship, this upcoming Monday, five o'clock Arizona time, eight o'clock uh, East Coast time, Monday, May 11th. So uh, my play is about my journey in recovery. And I really wanted, you know, when I was trying to get sober to find um, something that felt current, right? Something that had a sense of humor. If you are at all interested in like works of art about alcoholism that have a sense of humor, there is in fact Arthur, like a star is born and Arthur too. Right, those are really your three options. So I really wanted to try to write something that I felt like had, you know, what, uh, how I respond to the world, which is that like comedy plays a huge part in everything that we do. So we're gonna read it on Monday. Joe, who's gonna be on later, is the lead actor who is in it. And when Ryan is on, Ryan runs the Voices Project. And so the reading that we're doing on Monday is a benefit for Arizona Theater Company and for the Voices Project. So any money that we raise throughout in advance, during, afterwards will be split between the two organizations. So we hope to raise a little money like that. Now that said, what we always say is that we need you more than we need your money. So the reading will actually be free if anybody needs to. And actually the reading will be available online. You can check here through our Facebook page or our YouTube page or our Vimeo page to be able to watch it for four days afterwards. Uh, not only will we be doing that, our fantastic team is put together every day. There's a post-show post conversation like we normally do, uh, Tuesday, Wednesday, and Thursday, so that we'll be coming in to talk about the white chip each day. It's a really fantastic way for us to uh, raise awareness of this. M May is uh, Mental Health Awareness Month, right? And so it's, it's a great opportunity for us to be able to have a piece of theater that we feel like allows us to have those conversations and to not have them in kind of after school special ways, but really just to talk about like, what is the the cost of addiction that goes on in our country and how does it affect everybody? There's really been, if you've been paying attention, some fantastic articles that have come out in terms of, uh, you know, that there, there of course is a huge epidemic, right, with COVID-19 going on, but there is suspected that there is 
another huge one in terms of that addiction is on the rise right now as people are stuck in their homes as I think alcohol sales is up 390%, which like if I'm not drinking and sales are up, then you know that it's going on somewhere else. Uh, and so really like how are those people being able to get the, the help or the connection that they need? So the, the cornerstone of kind of modern recovery is actually the same as theater, which is that we gather in a room with people we don't know to share stories that are new or old or to have someone else share your story or to see someone who doesn't look like you share your story to be able to realize that you're a little less alone in this world. And so right now we can't we can't do either of those things, right? We can't gather in a recovery room or we can't gather in a theater. So the team, and it so touches my heart, wanted to get together to put on this uh, reading of the white chip to be able to spread it where it can be. Uh, the actors, there's a stage manager, there's an ASM, there's a tremendous amount of people and they're all donating their time for free because they really wanna make sure that money gets raised for these fantastic organizations and that just the word gets out about kind of what it is. So we are thrilled Monday, the 11th, eight o'clock on the East Coast, five o'clock in Arizona or the left coast. And we would love to have you be a part of it. Please check out our Facebook page. Please check out our YouTube link to be able to watch it when it happens or watch it sometime afterwards. Um, one of the, this is one of the, I will say one of the fun things about the reading on Monday, we wanted to do it live. We talked about maybe recording it and putting it out there so that we could edit together the best parts. And then we thought, no, part of the great thing about theater is the danger that happens, right? When we attempt to do a tremendous amount at the same time and try to pull it off in the moment. So we'll be doing it live and broadcasting it live Monday. So we hope you'll join us then. So my uh, first guest that I want to welcome to the show is Ryan Hampton. Ryan uh, runs the Voices Project. Uh, which is an amazing organization that works to get rid of the stigma of addiction through storytelling. Ryan is also the author of American Fix, which is a fantastic novel that has spread all over. Welcome to the show, Ryan Hampton. Oh, you're on, you're on mute. Oh, whoops. There you go. I, I you know, I'm just getting used to this Zoom stuff, so I apologize, man. It's like. Oh, it's like the, the the Zoom room, though. I'm in the Arizona Theater Company Zoom room. I love don't, it. Listen, don't don't feel bad. None of us had ever heard of this before a month ago, right? And now suddenly we're we're supposed to be experts on it. Thank you so much for joining. Where are you joining us from? Las Vegas. Okay, right. So you're you're nearby. You're right there. I'm nearby. It's hot. <laughs> I know it is. So um, I, I will say this just for to talk weather for a brief second. It's 107 where I am in Phoenix today and uh, where we just moved from in Massachusetts. It is supposed to be what they call like an Arctic bomb, right? So we're going mm -hmm. to snow all weekend long. So yeah, no, it's crazy. The, yeah, no, it's, it's nuts. It's, it is hot though. It's hot, but I'm super grateful, super grateful to be here with you. Super excited about the reading um, I just, yeah, I'm such, you know, uh, mutual respect on the work you do. I mean, it's just phenomenal. The white chip is awesome. The project is awesome. And we're just really happy to have a small part in, in such a phenomenal platform. Can you, can you just tell us a little bit about what the Voices Project is for those people that may be on the fence about donating to it? So the Voices Project actually started as just a concept, right? So, I mean, my 
as you, you know, you share your, your recovery story in, in one way. I, I shared mine um, and it was for the first time in 2016. Um, I certainly did never plan on getting vocal about my recovery and vocal about, you know, my journey through addiction and then finding recovery. Um, but it kind of came to a head for me when I was living in a sober living in 2016. Uh, I'd lost a, a lot of people really close to me to overdoses who were in early recovery themselves. And um, my my best friend and I had um, rented this 35 foot RV and we were really um, angry, but we felt that our voices weren't being heard and that our friends were dying from these preventable overdoses. And we wanted to go out into the world around the country and see what was happening uh, in different pockets around the United States. You know, we were living in Los Angeles at the time. So we were living in kind of this LA bubble and we wanted to see what other communities were doing. So we traveled um, 8,000 miles over 30 days and we crossed 22 states um, and we stayed in homes of people who had lost their kids to overdoses. We went to treatment facilities. We went to recovery community organizations. We met with nonprofit service providers. We went inside of jails. We went inside of prisons. We met with uh, policymakers. We met with doctors and uh, law enforcement officials and you know people who were still struggling, uh, homeless populations. And we just asked them, you know, what, 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 not just what's happening in your life, but what has happened, you know, what, what has been your barrier to getting care? What, uh, you know, what do you, what are you seeing in your community? What do you think we could be doing different? What needs to happen? And what we realized coming home from that trip, um, was there were all of these small pockets of just phenomenal solutions happening around the country. And we weren't, they weren't necessarily connected. Right. They, they were they were voices that weren't being heard, uh, not on a national level, certainly, but even on a local level or on a state level that um, people didn't value the recovery voice or the, you know, the, the lived experience voices. They would other, you know, social kind of impact or social justice um, movements. You know, they kind of saw us as this other problem, you know, that maybe could be dealt with. And um the Voices Project started as just that, a project. Um, I felt that if there would be a vehicle to get people to share their stories on a very wide basis using bold media or using social media or using op-eds or whatever tools we have at our disposal, um, that if more people got to know who we were, if more people got to hear our stories, if more people got to hear our experiences, um, then maybe we could start that shift of, you know, heart and hearts and minds, right? And start to have a larger kind of national dialogue. So that was it. It was a hashtag. It was hashtag Voices Project. We asked people to submit their stories. Uh, it became a blog. We um, shared them widely. A lot of the content went viral. And what we realized about seven, eight months into the project in early 2017, mid 2017, um, was that people would share their stories and we got thousands of submissions, right? I mean, like just, it became a thing and um, people would share their stories and then they would ask me or ask our team, um, well, what's next? Like, how do we, how do we do more? Like now we've shared our story, people are reaching out to us, you know, we want to do more. Like we've shed all this like shame that we'd been carrying for a long time. And like, I'm losing friends, you know, they were losing friends to overdoses and they were seeing these problems in their communities and they wanted to get more involved. 
And um, it was the same journey I went through and probably the same journey, maybe I don't want to speak for you, but that you went through, like you, you shared your story in some sort of public venue with one person or two people or through some sort of media. And then you realize, wow, there's more to do. And maybe people are going to listen to me. And that's when we realized we needed a nonprofit structure. We needed to actually put some meat on the bones to this idea. And Voices Project was um, officially founded as a uh, 501c3 public charity. And the work that we're mostly involved in now uh, is not just around raising awareness, which we do really well, right? Like we had the first ever recovery fest last year or back in September, 2018, 10,000 people in a stadium, Macklemore fits in the tantrums, you know, national broadcast. I mean, you know, people were paying attention for that moment, right. but it was about how do we take those people who were in that stadium and those that are coming to us through Voices Project and empower them not just to tell their story, but to make those seismic changes in their own community. How do we, what tools do they need to go out and fight for more funding for treatment or more money for naloxone distribution within recovery homes or, you know, continuing recovery supports, which could look like behavioral health care counseling or housing for people in early recovery, which is a big issue for us. Like, how do we, how do we make those changes? Well, these people who are now sharing their stories need those tools. They need that training. They need that coalition building. You know, they need the support and the technical assistance to make changes in their own communities because a lot of, you know, the recovery movement is so young um, that most of it has been a few kind of big national organizations which do great work and we're partnered with all of them, but kind of like that American Cancer Society saying, well, here's what we need to be doing nationally. Here's our 10-point agenda and we want everybody to follow it. My experience, and I think the experience of those who are involved with voices and anyone on the ground in their, in their local community will tell you that change actually happens from the bottom to the top, not from the top to the bottom, right? And so from the grassroots up, it's the other way around. And um, so we're providing those communities, those community leaders, those community coalitions, those skills, support, tools, technical assistance, training um, to, to get that done. We also have an overdose response initiative, which is a, a bold initiative. You know, many of my friends that overdosed and died um, that led us to voices, to create voices, died because naloxone, the overdose antidote, was not available in the sober home or in a recovery house or overdose response measures weren't in place. Uh, we have a bold initiative to uh, have naloxone and naloxone training in every single recovery home in the United States within the next three years, and we're well on our way. We received a donation of 1 million units of naloxone uh, last year, which we're currently distributing to sober residences with technical training and overdose response training um, in several pilot states right now. So uh, we do a lot. We do Mobilize Recovery, which is a, an initiative a convening every year, uh, much along the lines of our, our community empowerment uh, mission statement. Um, you know, but, but, but the goal, the ultimate goal is to be out of business, right? Like this is one, <laughs> this is, you know, you don't hear that for many people, but I would love to see the Voices Project out of business within the next two, 10 years, because that means we've done our job, right? We, we, we don't, we, we are accidental advocates because of our life experiences. Um, and I would love to see people that come to Voices Project and go out and create bigger, bolder, more impactful programs than we're doing right now, because that means that we're doing our job. That's amazing. Uh, you know, one of the things I love about, and you talk about this in your book, uh, American Fix is that you really are, in many ways, a nonpartisan 
political advocate, right? That you really believe that it's not about Republicans or Democrats. It's about we're losing a certain number of people every my day. Candidate, yeah, my can I like to say if, 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 you know, if you look at it for politics as a scope of politics, like I do or political engagement, like my candidate is recovery. So yeah. it doesn't matter if it's a Republican or a Democrat, my candidate is recovery. Well, and you know, like we watched, right, the Democratic debates, and I don't think anybody mentioned, you know, addiction in our country for the until the fourth debate. I mean, so right. it's not it's not even a it's a it's a it's not a partisan issue. It's right. something that everybody turns a bit of a blind eye to, even though it's mm -hmm. killing so many people per day in our country. But the numbers are in our favor, right? And that's why one of the things with voices that 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 fuels me every single day, you know. 23 million Americans living in long-term recovery in the United States is no small group of people, you know, uh, estimated 21 to 24 million Americans uh, who currently need help right now. You know, if you do the math on that, that's somewhere around one in three American households, right, that are directly impacted, right? Um, that, that is a massive constituency that, that, that needs to be supported, but also needs to be validated. Um, it's just kind of, we're in that phase right now where people will identify and put that in a survey or in a census or, or whatever is being done, but we haven't really activated them to, you know, sharing that story, you know, not feeling that shame, getting more involved, identifying recovery as an actual, you know, empowerment issue within their, within their um, community and a uh, electoral or a civic issue. Uh, with their policymakers, like we're we're getting there. We're we're you know I think we've probably made more strides in the last couple of years than we had in decades, right? So people are more comfortable with identifying. And there's a there's a there's a playbook for how we combat the overdose crisis in America. How we how we get more equitable healthcare to people who need it, um, who are suffering with substance use disorder or mental health disorder. I mean, it's you can look at. Uh, you know, the civil rights movement, you can look at the LGBT movement. I mean, all of these movements have started with some sort of um, element of storytelling, which, you know, allowed the broader universe, you know, and other members of, of people all around the country to finally understand that there's more of us than they think there are, and that they actually know someone. And when there's that shift, you know, there's a complete perception, perception change and real trajectory change on how we address it. You know, I, whenever we do the white chip, I always feel like ho somewhat horrible for like people that just had a subscription and have to come to it, you know, because if they're not in addiction, I feel like I'm so sorry that you have to now sit through this. And then what happens every time though, I can't remember this is that everybody comes up to me afterwards if I'm in the lobby and says like, oh, this is about my father, brother, ex-wife, you know, son, cousin and so you're like oh no it, it touches it touches everyone even if it's not particularly them and so one of the reasons also i just want to give a shout out your website uh brianhampton.org resources right uh, is a is an amazing place to go and we're going to put it up on the screen after the reading that we do online because so often what happens is that people see the play and then they reach out to me and say my son is struggling what do i do yeah, you know, and it's like I, you know, here let me actually put you in touch with professionals who know who can help yeah. you along the way. That's what we do too. I mean, it's so important that it, you you got to remember too, like at the heart of this, I think the most important message that we can convey to people is it's okay to ask for help, it's yeah. okay to get help, and that you do get better. 
you know, and that, that there is no shame in starting that conversation. That's the, the most important thing that we can do above all else is to let people know that it is okay. It is completely okay to ask for help and to be going through what you're going through right now. Yeah. No, you know, we talked a little bit last week, but I, I truly believe shame, right, kills so many of us. Like so many of us never ask for help. I know I, I only asked for help when it was beyond the bottom. You know, I just couldn't along the way say like, I have a problem and I need help and I couldn't be public about it. Mm -hmm. And that was all, that was me, you know, yeah. stopping me from doing that. Yeah. Um, th this has been amazing. Thank you so much for coming on to chat with us. Uh, I could chat with you for hours and hours, but uh, so just so everyone will be reminded that the reading is on Monday. It's a benefit for Arizona Theater Company and the Voices Project. So any money raised goes to this fantastic organization that uh, is really doing phenomenal work throughout the whole country. Thanks so much, Sean. I can't wait for it. And thanks for uh, including us. And thanks for all the work you do and the theater company does. Uh, you know, as someone who loves Broadway and off-Broadway, like this is super exciting for me. So thank you. <laughs> Excellent. All right. Thank you so much, Ryan. Thanks, guys. Bye. All right. All right. So uh, I, just one more pitch. I feel like the Voices Project, the idea that we can change society and that we can help people to live through storytelling, that we can do it through sharing stories of other people is so close to, I think, everything we believe about in the theater, right? That we believe empathy is a worthwhile thing to practice over and over again. And they do that every day. So I'm grateful for them. Uh, next up, we have Hank Stratton. So we want to go ahead and welcome him to the show. Hank is the artistic director of the Arizona Repertory Theater, which is the main theater there at the University of Arizona. Um, Hank is an artist living in long-term recovery. Um, Hank also, uh, for some reason, I, like Hank knows everyone I know, and I saw Hank in a ill-famed production of Aida uh, about 400 years ago at the Alliance. Uh, we don't have to talk about that too much, but- We it's don't a, really, it, do we? No, we I think this is when I bought that television too. So. I think so. Do you like it? able to do it, I know. So, it's vintage. Uh, that's right. Uh, thank you so much for coming on the show. Thanks for having me, Sean. It's good to yeah. see you. Yeah, so I think this is fascinating, right? That, um, uh, and we're gonna talk to um, Ricky from Teatro Bravo next week, but we have, actually Arizona has a lot of artistic directors living in long-term recovery, um, which makes for, right, terrible opening night parties, right? <laughs> like we, re we really have ruined it for our staff. You know what, but we're really good designated drivers. That's so right, someone has to get Our home. staff is always safe. That's right, to be able to do it. Um, so just tell me a little bit about what you do about, and you're somewhat new to Arizona also, correct? I am. Uh, this is my, I'm just finishing up my fourth year. This is the second year that I have, um, I'm sorry, it seems like the second year. This is my, the end of my first official year uh, running the program here uh, and the artistic directorship of the Arizona Repertory Theater here at the university. Um, uh, before that, uh, and in the midst of all this, I continue to be a professional actor and director. Um, you and I have a million and five friends in common in and out of the rooms, in, in and out of the theater. It's surprising that it took us until July of last year to actually sit down and go, hey, wait a minute, what, what, what? That's right, that's right, yeah. Yeah. So, um, yeah, and I'm so I'm relatively new to Arizona um, as well. You grew up here though, didn't you? 
I grew up in Mesa, in Mesa um, right. and actually my, the first theater I went to uh, was this theater, Arizona Theater Company. My parents took as, me when I was a kid to everything. As a lad, yeah. it's full yeah. circle. It's yeah, great. so it's, you know, so part of it was like, go back and work at the theater that changed your life, right? Like, right. It's a, and also I, I love the idea that like every kid that walks into our education department can someday be the artistic director because that's, I took every acting class that we offered. Um, they, I'm a terrible actor, so they may not have stuck, but you know, I, like I sopped everything up at, you know, at that young age to be able to. Well, Sean, you and I have talked about this, that theater saved my life as well. There are two things that saved my life. I don't mean to be too personal on Facebook, but that's actually no, the, no, the intersection no. of recovery and theater and art is what we're here to talk about, correct? Go for it, yeah. Yeah, so I mean, the, the two things that saved me were theater that then led me to London, which allowed me to really figure out that I needed to get clean and sober. And then of course, sobriety was was the defining moment of my life, not only as a man, but as an artist, as a father, as a as a son, as a, you know, as a colleague, everything. I, I owe everything to the fact that I was able to, at a very early age, um, really arrest uh, what was a, a a really bad, problem, really bad problem. It wasn't pretty. It wasn't pretty. I wouldn't have been able to do anything that I'm doing today. I would not be the guy that I am today without it. Um, for the good and the bad, and that doesn't right. mean that I'm perfect. Um, we are not saints, as they say. Um, uh, and uh, one of the one of the things that I think is important is that I found my authentic voice. I think I, I don't know if you've heard this, but I hear it a lot that. Um, uh, one of the resistances, one of the the, the, the pieces of resistance that um, some of my friends who are still out there struggling encounter is that they feel that they're going to lose their creativity, they're going to lose their artistic voice, they're going to lose that passion, that spark. I actually found the opposite to be true. That's what ignited my, my true authentic self, my creativity, my passion, but it also allowed me to be disciplined and harnessed um, and focused. And I think that that's not an uncommon uh, story in recovery if somebody would just embrace that and put down the anchor of what they of what they the, the old narrative of what they think is true about recovery. So you know we're so we're dedicating this performance to Terrence McNally who was a big supporter of the play and um, one of the stories he always told us was that he had a similar worry that like once he got sober he you know that that magic would be gone right the alchemy of whatever it is and so. He got sober and then he, he wrote his first play and that was Frankie and Johnny and the Claire de Lune was his first right afterwards, which of course was just on Broadway. So right. it, in fact, perhaps just the opposite, right? That like him and his voice flourished in those times afterwards when he had the clarity to be able to work on it. Well, and the first time that I met him actually was through somebody that he sponsored in the program that was a television writer in Los Angeles. And, and I just happened to be in the right living room in New York City um, and met the great Terrence McNally. And I was just, I mean, it was an awe and so centered, so clear, everything that he said, he was just such grace. Uh, and, and you know, you know, you know, yeah. you know, Terrence. They, uh, have you, have you seen the documentary about his life and like how he got, like who, can you guess who told him like, you need to pull your life together? Uh, <laughs> it's Angela Lansbury, pulls him aside at a party and is the person who tells it. And I guess like what Angela Lansbury tells you, like pull your shit together. Like you're- You kind of listen. You do it, yeah, you do it. Well, and oh gosh, I'm really dating myself here, but I did an episode of Murder, She Wrote with Angela Lansbury and I like <laughs> really? towed it in. Dude, I towed it in my, my like poster of Sweeney Todd and told her that 
Sweeney Todd is actually in my story because when I woke up on that day that I decided that this was it, um, Sweeney Todd with God, that's good. God, that's good. Was skipping on the record player because it was a vinyl and it was skipping. And I, I didn't you, tell you, her. You had put Sweeney Todd on before passing out the night before. Is that clearly is that it was a bottom. It was a real bottom. <laughs> so, so, so I didn't tell her that part, but I did tell her that um, that Sweeney Todd was very defining for me. And I think it's it's still my favorite musical and it's great. Uh, Stephen Sondheim's greatest masterwork. But um, I had her sign that and she told me all these stories about Sweeney Todd. And then I worked with Len, Len Carew later on and uh, was able to, you know, I, I told him that story about about God, that's good skipping on the record player. Uh, at the Friars Club. How fun is that? <laughs> Over Osobuco, we were we were sitting there and I told him that story. Anyway, enough name dropping. No, I know, it's great. Um, so what is it like to be an artist in recovery today? What's it like to be an artist in recovery in Arizona? Do you find that Arizonans are game for it or do you get weird looks when it comes up or? You know what, Sean, it's been so many years because I got sober when I was very, very young and I've been sober my entire adult life. So it's almost like just a way of being. It's sort of like hair color to me almost. Yeah. I don't take it. No, that's that's completely glib. Um, I don't take it for granted and it's still something that I work toward and um and i think is an important principle but some of some of these some of these ideas and some of these principles are just second nature to me now and that's part of the promises that's a beautiful part of the promises that what used to be confusing to us all of a sudden become second nature and self-seeking slips away and something else takes its place um but I don't, I, I will occasionally get the, this is what I get more than, more than anything. And it's, um, uh, for instance, at the gala of, um, of uh, the, the ATC this year, yeah. you yeah. had those fantastic topiary that had like shots of something or other. Yeah. And I cannot yeah. even tell you how much I wanted that. I just wanted to like get in that topiary and I want, and then, and then the, the person behind the topiary was trying to negotiate with me that this was a good thing. And I was like, no, it's not a good thing for me. So those right. are the only times that, you know, sort of like it trips me up ever and trips me up is just sort of like when it makes me smile and I have to negotiate it. But I don't think I get, I get, um, uh, off putting, you know, messages from, from the community. There are those times when people just want you to sit down and like belly up to the bar. And I just don't do that, but I, I will sit with you while you belly up to the bar and I'll have, I'll have what I call like a, a faux cocktail. I'll, I'll have like tonic water with Angostura bitters in it and a squeeze of lime and a bucket because it feels sexy and fun to me. There you go. Lots that of ingredients, really right? Safe. That, yeah, that it looks like, like a cocktail, right? right uh, yeah. But that's sort of like an opening night thing for me um, and a treat. Um, but uh, I do, I, every now and then I'll, I'll still encounter that person that will say something like, and they're so well-intentioned when they say it, they'll say, good for you. And I will say, I don't deserve any extra credit for what I'm doing. I absolutely don't. This is actually what's required for me to be coherent and collegial and friendly and graceful on the planet. That is it. I do not deserve any trophies for this. This is just simply what I need to do. Right. Do you, do you find that you, that you receive resistance or? Um, I think it makes people nervous. I think it's uh, just, I think at first they don't know what to do with that information, you know? And then I think people just are unsure, like how to bring it up, uh, you know, in, because we work in theater, right? Which is like, 
they're like opening night toasts and there are, you know, I walk past those same topiaries and everyone's like, have a drink. And I was like, I really do not Didn't want you to rob you yeah, at the but- end of the evening. And that would probably be like how it would end up. And then I, I would have ended know, up south of the border. That, that's I right. That's right. I would you. steal a bunch of things and then like take your car. Like nobody wants that to be how my first gala ends. Um, no, and I just, but I think part of, we spend a lot of time talking about like just breaking the stigma of addiction, right? Like why, so so like theoretically by the numbers, 10% of our country is in recovery from something, right? So that's, but, and if you, you know, like when you go to work at a theater, you would not think twice about being like, I have like a nut allergy, like do not bring your nuts around here, you know, or God knows there was, right, there was like some bad romaine lettuce at one point and we were on it, right, as a country, making sure that like nobody had, like my mother still texting about, you know, don't get bad romaine lettuce. And so, but when it comes to recovery, we don't, we don't talk about that. And so I think it really feels like a strange foreign thing when it comes up in conversation. And, um, and I, I will give credit to this, right? So when we were talking about doing this reading and doing it as, you know, do we do it as a benefit for Arizona Theater Company? Do we do it as a benefit for Just the Voices Project? Tom Curtihy, who was uh, our original producer when we had done it off-Broadway, I often like ask him for his advice about like what we should do. And his thing was like, listen, Arizona Theater Company hired someone who is in long-term recovery. And that I think puts them very much forward as a as an organization that's interested in you know, being part of the solution to this and an organization that is interested in second chances and interested in like what the future looks like as we embrace more of these people. So that's why well, I think you should do it. Well, it's interesting, John, you bring up a really good point about the stigma and people being uncomfortable and uh, using, you know, and I think it is not uh, an inaccurate equivalency, the allergy, because it is an allergy of the body and an obsession of the mind. So, but I think that people still to this day, and I'm from Hollywood and I'm from New York and, you know, it's like, you know, you say you're sober and people are very sort of blase about it. What are your other skills? You know, it's like, it's not that big of a deal, you know? Um, but I think every now and then you'll encounter a board member or somebody that's, you know, that, that you're working with. And and if there is an uncomfortable response, it's perhaps, and, and again, these people are very well-intentioned. They don't understand the allergy part. They don't understand the disease part of it. Right. And that we are actually in long-term recovery from a disease. Um, that it is not a weakness, actually. It is, a, it is a disease. It is my biology that led me to where I am. When I, uh, so when I was, uh, I had just gotten sober and um, I was just trying to get my feet back from underneath me and I was very lucky. I had some like great like friends in the industry that were like, we're gonna, we're gonna help you get back on your feet. The first job that I got, uh, I was sent to Estonia. I was part of this, like the first ever contingent to go over there. It was the United States, Estonia, Russia, and Latvia. Um, and this is my friends, Wendy Goldberg and, and, and Jill Anderson. I know they sent me over there. They essentially sent me to like the land of vodka. They sent me to like where it is from. And every and every meal, the Estonians would feel like I was offending them by not drinking because they were just like that. This is what you do. Like vodka is just like, 
that's just part of what lunch is. That's just part of what dinner is. And you don't drink water. Yeah, that's it. I know. And so you love the general accent that I just used, by the way. I know that that's how I know you're a professional. That's right. To be able to do it. Yeah. But it was the same thing where you were like, okay, you know, some people are offended by it. Some people find it weird. Other people, other people think it's a secret club that, you know, that you get to be a part of. Yeah. And it's, it's, it's interesting that every now and then it comes up that I just don't want to talk about it. And I won't explain, you know, I don't, I don't drink and, you know, invariably someone will want to pull the thread. And I, I, like I said, I've been sober all my adult life. So it's a conversation that I have easily in most situations. I just, it's just a, it's just a given with me. Um, So, but I do, I don't want to on a, uh, at a, at an event, at a development event, have to tell the story. Right. So I, and, and usually people don't, don't ask, but I don't know. Yeah. So what, so we just have like a minute left. What's next for, for Hank and for U of A and do you know? You, well, U of A is in the middle, like you are, you and I have been texting a lot about the mitigation of COVID-19 and just making sure that we finish the term coherently and responsibly, fulfilling the contract that we have with our students, with our patrons, with the university, all of that. Uh, President Robbins has just announced that he has a, a very solid plan to test, trace, and treat the virus so that he's going to bring students back to uh, campus responsibly. We still don't know what that means in terms of gathering people in our theaters, whether that means that we will be able to gather students in our theaters, but not audiences or limited audiences, or we're just waiting for guidelines as you are from the government, from the community, from the university itself. But we're very hopeful that we will be back on stage in the fall. We're planning for that, Um, crossing our fingers that we are still planning our collaboration and our partnership, all of that in January. Yeah, so we were gonna do Hot Pink or Ready to Blow by Joni Drago, directed by Veronica Durr. And so our hope is that that still goes forward because we wanna figure out ways for our staff and the artists that we love so much to work with you and with your students. Likewise, and it's definitely part of our plan. We're, you know, we're starting to schedule production meetings. Uh, Veronica, if you're listening, you will be, I'll be contacting you over the summer about that stuff. Um, but that's that's what's next for us. I mean, we're all sort of like in a hurry up and wait. We just had an, a had a committee meeting today where we were talking about hypotheticals, and we just decided to sort of put hypotheticals on hold until we had some concretized information, yeah. so that we could then just make one plan with then three contingency plans after that. Do you know what I mean? So that's that's where we are but I'm, I'm really proud of of the of the colleagues that i work with and the university that i work with and the community that i'm a part of you uh front and center of that i'm just really proud to be your colleague and your friend here in tucson oh thank you thank you it's a, it's an honor and like how great to arrive uh and you know find people like you waiting for me here well now, i was waiting for you we've just been waiting for you you know yeah. we were we were watching you get off the 10. Thank you so much, Hank, for being on this. I so appreciate it. It's always amazing to see you. Good to see you. I'll I'll talk to you soon. Bye. All right. Bye. What a charming guy. Um, Next up, we have Joe Tapper, who I want to welcome to the show. Joe is is a phenomenal actor. He has been on Broadway. He has been everywhere. The basic rule whenever you write an autobiographical play about yourself is that you should hire someone younger and more attractive to play you. And so that's where we first encountered Joe. So I want to welcome him to the show. Joe Tapper, everyone. Hey. 
How are you? How uh, are you? I'm good. I'm good. I have to say, it's been so we have been rehearsing uh, the white ship throughout the week to get ready, and it's been so nice to be like in a rehearsal, even though. It's still like me just sitting at my desk and it's still, you know, like nothing has changed. It was so yes. nice to like have a first rehearsal where like yes. everybody said their name and then we talked a little about the show and then we did a read through. I mean, it just felt like the ritual of putting on theater felt so comforting. It, it was, it was, it was exact. It was comforting. It was comforting. There was weird, some weird things like which box on right. Zoom is going to go first because we don't know like who's supposed to go. But no, but, it, uh, it is the disaster of any conference call with 30 people <laughs> when someone says, introduce yourselves. And then you're like, we'll all speak yeah. at the same time. Yeah. Yeah. One thing that's great about Zoom that I've noticed in the big groups is like people are very good at going, go ahead. That's right. That's right. Go ahead. You know, like if only we could be so courteous in real life, maybe that That's would right. be what to we... raise your hand and let people know that you want to talk to me. <laughs> It'll be the go ahead revolution. <laughs> go ahead. <laughs> um, so I, uh, I'm such a fan of you. Uh, <sighs> Likewise, and, uh, I'm a and, fan of you. And uh, everybody, when they come to see the play, uh, we, so when we did it, uh, when we opened right in New York, we had like several donors come up from Arizona Theater Company to be there, and afterwards they were all like, "Oh, he's amazing! He does you better than you." And, and you're and you're always like, "Thanks, thank you for that." <laughs> that's that's so this so funny, like because I I it was this weird also kind of a reverse thing where um, I had close close friends of mine that I've known for a decade or more who came up to me after seeing the show. And these are not like friends who fell off, like people that are, it's, it's nap, it's bedtime in my yeah. household. So yeah, yeah. there's same, same here, same here. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> some yeah, things yeah. happening. Yeah. Uh, so that, that's also the new thing about um, uh, the at home. Uh, so, um, so like I had close friends who'd come up to me, like friends that I'm like in con continuous contact with. And they would come up to me afterwards, like, you know, and prof profoundly moved by your story uh, and would say, so did, did they just like, did they, did he just write, you know, your story, Joe? Did he just <laughs> write your story? I said, no, that has nothing to do with me. That's, that's Sean's story. There are like a couple of like weird coincidences that, but like, I believe in coincidences. I mean, that's kind of like the other coincidence of the, of of us in the show of, yeah. of us getting to meet and do the show but um yeah but uh yeah i yeah it's um it was like the you know it's kind of one of those amazing things you know how you know as you hear the stories of like people being like well this thing kind of happened to come in my life and and i kind of followed the trail and and then it was this you know great uh treasure and and i really feel like that with with this with the with your with your play, you know, because it came into me, as you know, with with my friend, our friend, Chris Pena, writing me kind of on an afternoon saying, hey, read this play. If you're interested, you should audition. And I was not even available. And I read it and I s called, you know, the people that you make calls. And I said, <laughs> you got to give me an audition. And here, here and now we're sitting on a Zoom call and you're in Arizona and I'm in Brooklyn. So. <laughs> right, right. Yeah. 
Well, and you know, I think what's fascinating, like I always think that like actors are transformative and they can play almost anything. And, and we've had a couple of really fantastic actors play the role before and we learned so much from all of them. But you are the first actor in recovery yeah. to play the role. And I think yeah. that had shifted so much of it just in yeah. terms of what you keyed into or, you know, even the things that other people were like, we should cut this line, this line makes no sense. And you were like, we that, that line is what the entire thing is about. Like you just <laughs> understand on a fundamental level. Yeah. 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 I, I mean, I, I totally agree with you. I obviously, I don't think you need to <laughs> like, you know, we do Shakespeare, so you don't need to, you know, eat, kill people to, you know, to play somebody who kills someone. So That's right. yes, yeah. I, I agree with that. Um, I very much agree with that. Um, um, so, but, um, yeah, you know, uh, this was one of those things. I just, it just, it, it, I got it. I get it. It's like, you, you get it. You just get it. You, it's kind of like playing a parent. Don't you think? Like I'm a parent now. I, I think when I had to play a father before I kind of had an idea of what it was to play a father, but right. once you have a kid and it's your kid, you know, you know, yeah. you, 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 you get it on a, like when I've done it since then, it's a whole level that is really hard to, to, to approximate, excuse me, yeah. you know. So what is it like being an artist in, in recovery today for you in New York city, you know? Um, well, at, at first it was scary because what I, I think what, like when I first came into the theater, when I was like 18 and I, um, I did my first show, like at a Shakespeare theater outside of Chicago, I was like, oh, these are like, oh, these are my people. These are people who get me. And I remember being taken to my first bar in Chicago and I was vastly underage, but they got me in. And, um, I just, gosh, I can't even remember the name, but I mean, I, I went and, you know, I was taken care of, right. I was taken care of by like the older actors and the, it was amazing. It was like this amazing feeling of camaraderie and, and then you go to college and you meet, you know, the, the theater, you know, fraternity sorority that the theater department is and, and, and then all the artists and, and kind of sometimes, alcohol and substances um they they walk a thin line they walk a, they walk a line with 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 arts and i was um that's probably not the right expression but they walk hand in hand with with the right. arts sometimes and you know i i'd grown up admiring you know great artists who you know um who who had had been drinkers you know so so when i first got sober or when I first considered getting sober, because obviously it didn't take right away. Um, I was, you know, really terrified. I was like, no, this, this isn't me. This isn't the way that I, you know, kicking and screaming, this isn't the way it's going to go down for me. And um, essentially like when I finally discovered like that when I was at risk of losing something that mattered enough, right? You know, that mattered enough to, okay, I've got to change my life. Um, and I did, and luckily. Um, then I was, then it was like, okay, this is, uh, this is who I'm, it, it was like a, a like I, I got to put on a new 
new clothes, like a new, I'm a new artist. Like I got to be a whole brand new person and reintroduce myself to um, the, the community in a different way. And there were, you know, and I was really scared of that. Like, oh, well, you know, the people who knew me, because I burned a lot of bridges, uh, you know, I, I, you know, held grudges. I did, you know, held grudges, did all the things that people do that you, you know, and, um, and people were, were open and, and, you know, because I, you know, people were open and, and I, and, uh, and accepting and, uh, and it, and it, it was, um, it was revitalizing for me and, I mean, it's, it's, it saved my life and it kind of gave me, you know, a, a new chance. It gave me truly a new chance. I, I had spoken to somebody who came to see the white chip who had never really seen me before afterwards. It's like, so why haven't I ever seen you before? And a, and a mutual close friend of ours out once said, well, I think it's probably, he was, he was friends with this other, I think it's probably because there's a lot of gaps in your resume from like, when you were struggling, because I did, like I came out of school, I had a little, some, some jobs. And then sure enough, like I was out of the business as quickly as I was in it, you know, because I was, cause I wasn't showing up. I wasn't showing up for the, for the job, you know? Yeah. So when I finally got those opportunities again, boy, did I hit it with a full steam of gratitude and commitment that I just didn't have before. <laughs> Does that answer the question? No, <laughs> that's amazing. Yeah. Well, but you know, what's so funny is I feel like those are the stories we don't hear, you know, like I, I just really felt like I can't hold my liquor and this is the deal that you make with the devil to be a great artist and you're just going to be boring. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Yeah. I, uh, I remember there, I had, a, I had a, a girl I was dating at the time and I was like, I'm so nervous that I'm going to be boring when I quit. And yeah, she was like, for sure. She was like, do you have any idea how boring you are now? Do you have yes, like, yes. You, you just like sit at the bar for like five hours? Like, do you have any idea? Nobody else finds that entertaining, but you. And I was like, oh, oh, you know, yeah. like that. Cause we just don't hear these stories about like the celebration that happens afterwards. Right. Right. Yes. Um, yeah. Yeah, I, I, I'll walk, you know, I'll walk through Brooklyn, you know, back when Brooklyn used to be walkable and, and open. Yeah. And I walk past like dive bars, you know, and I'll just look in and see the, the darkness and the, you know, and I, you know, it, during, uh, uh, you know, during the light of day and I just, you know, I'll be with my wife and I'll go, <sighs> you know, like take a big sigh because who, you know, there was a time where it's like, go in there and sit all day, you know? That's right, that's right. Easily go in and it would feel so comforting to go in and you know, yeah. the rest of the day is gone. The rest of the day is gone. Oh boy, oh yeah, oh yeah. I know, right? No, like I, after a while I was like, oh my God, five to seven. Five to seven. There's a time during the day between five and seven that you can yeah. do things if you want yes. to. <laughs> yeah, or, or get, yeah, and getting up early and getting a, having a whole day, having a right. whole day before I'd even wake up is an amazing thing. Folding clothes, doing the dishes, amazing. Exercise, <laughs> <laughs> um, <laughs> exercise, yeah, you know, like, and, and boy, oh boy, yeah. Amazing. Amazing how your life can just totally, like, it's like this life beyond your dreams. It's totally, absolutely true. If you, if you allow it to be, right. because yeah, right, I'll be so boring. I used to be like, oh, I won't see my friends. I, you know, 
I've definitely see my friends. I, it's like getting off Facebook or getting off of in social media. I remember one time being like, well, what am I going to do if I'm not on social media? And then one day I was like, I'll find out the things I need to find out. I'll find out so, so-and-so's birthday or whatever yes. big, you know, it, I'll find it out. Um, you know, so in some way I will find it out. Um, you know, I'm still on social media, but, but, but I'm That's sure right. I would write it out. That's right. Yeah. <laughs> I limit, I'm limiting. <laughs> um, um, yeah. Now, can you, you had an amazing uh, just story the other day in rehearsal, right? Your wife is an artist also. And so you're both yes. to like be zoom artists in a six yes. foot square. Apartment, yes. Right. Like, yes. Like, you tell us the story of the other day. Yes. So we're, we're trying to juggle this new brave new world that we're all in. And, and I'm in, and I'm in this room, which is I'm transforming into our play space, which is like, you see this, right. But right. on this side of it is a whole different That's chaos. Right. That's right. Uh, but so my wife, at the same time, we had kind of messed up with scheduling. She had to do a masterclass for all like 30 students and <laughs> she hadn't quite um, prepared like how we were going to juggle my son and how he was going to like be, you know, stimulated during that time. And she was like, oh, I, I need his headphones so he can listen to music while and, and do the color, you know, color while I'm, you know, doing the masterclass there in the room where Joe and the desk where Joe is like literally rehearsing and acting. So I'm in the midst of this, um, that's going through her mind. So I'm in the midst of this, like our play and I'm your play. And I'm like, you know, in this, you know, f fully focused in the camera and stuff. And I see through my side, the door open. And then my wife drop to the ground in like army crawl. And she crawls like this on her belly <laughs> as, as I'm like, saying these lines, you know, and I see her like she's underneath now she's gone underneath me. And I'm like, and I'm like moving. And she's now pulled the drawer out from right next to me. And I've adjusted and I'm still like in this and she's pulled out the speakers, uh, and the, the headphones and, and she's like now successfully trying to crawl back. And it was at this moment that the stage manager called hold or something like that. And then then I was able to reveal that my wife was like, right here, um, underneath going to to do an army crawl back uh to get my son some headphones so he could watch uh teletubbies or or uh paw patrol nothing that's, that's amazing yeah so this is like two <laughs> artists in an apartment in the time of zoom right like trying to make it work zoom time zoom time yeah yeah but we um, we have to you know we have to do it yeah so uh we're doing the reading on monday what are you excited or terrified about the only thing i'm terrified about and i'm uh, the only thing I'm terrified about is technology. Like I'm learning that one, my left AirPod is not charging as fast as my right AirPod. So that's something I learned from this call. So yeah. it's like, I just hope that these, like the things will all be charged enough. I'm very excited for all of it. Um, that's the only thing I'm like nervous about is like technology stuff, making sure like nothing runs out of batteries or unplugs or anything like that. Any, you know, you know, um, whatever Murphy's law stuff, Murphy's law yeah. stuff you can't control, no, but I mean, I'm grateful for every second I get to say this stuff again, you know, that's for sure. Yeah. No, I mean, we talked about like the most crazy part of all of this is like, what's the Wi-Fi speed of the actors? Like that might actually determine the most of like how it goes. Right. But mm -hmm. in a little though, that's like, 
live theater that like somebody coughs at the right moment or somebody's feeling a little down or you know what I mean? It's like it's a live event and it's just like a hint of chaos is through it all. Yeah, it is. It's live theater. It's exactly right. Yeah. Yeah. So well, I, I'm such a big fan of you. I want to thank you so much for for doing this play and for doing it again. Yes. Uh, well, likewise, I'm a big fan of you. I love you. I love you too, buddy. And we will, everyone will see you on Monday. All right. All Joe right. Tapper, everyone. Thank Bye. you so much for being on here. And as I mentioned, uh, he's been on Broadway and we didn't talk about that at all. So that is our guests for today. I want to thank you all so much for watching. And just a reminder, we are doing a reading of The White Chip Monday, May 11th, 8 o'clock East Coast time, 5 o'clock out here, starring Joe Tapper, who you just saw. And with the, it's a benefit for Arizona Theater Company and for the Voices Project. So that Brian Hampton was here talking about early on. So that is coming up. That is thrilling. We're just grateful to have an, a piece of theater to be doing and to be spreading it with you. Uh, I do want to say next week is really exciting. We're going to be talking to some Arizona artists. We're going to be talking to Chanel Bragg, who everyone loves, who's essentially like the queen of musical theater in Arizona, and Ricky Arizia, who is the artistic director of Teatro Bravo, just talking about what does it mean to be an Arizona artist during this time, and to also just talk about what we have coming up in the upcoming season. So that is it for this afternoon. Thank you all so much. Thank you for supporting Arizona Theater Company. And please go to arizonatheater.org so you can see more of the great online stuff that we're doing or to our Facebook page so you can get updates. All right, thank you all so much. Bye.